This is Journey Church Podcast. Here at Journey, we believe in encountering God and embracing people. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Dad in the room can relate. I know that's how I, that's how I do it when I make the bed in the morning. Amen. Praise God. Well, I want to welcome you. So glad you're here today. Uh, happy Father's Day, everybody. You know, as we are into this series called uh, Movement, we're really talking about the movement of the Holy Spirit, how the church was birthed, and, and how the Holy Spirit impacts our lives today. And so if you've been part of a Pentecostal church, you've heard of the Holy Spirit. If this is new to you because that wasn't your sort of upbringing or understanding, I want you to just be, a, just be ready for what God wants to say to you today and how the Holy Spirit wants to move in your life today. You know, one of the things that have puzzled historians for years uh, is, is why Christianity spread so fast in its earlier days. Uh, the group that Jesus left behind, the people that he left behind was relatively small, uh, and they weren't very influential people at all. They were fishermen and carpenters. Like, you would think Jesus maybe, like, Jesus, like, could you have put together a better band of brothers here, you know? Really, the fishermen and the carpenters. I'm not, if you're a fisherman or a carpenter here today, we love you. But Christianity didn't advance through some conquest, as people thought, like they would take, be taken by force. So for the first 400 years, no one really picked up a sword in defense of it. It didn't make its followers rich. In fact, it usually led them to losing their homes and fortunes. In fact, it produced communities that unlike the world has ever seen. It, 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 it produced people who were peaceable. There was a lot of persecuted religious groups in those, those days. Uh, just It was the Christians that refused to fight back, praying for the forgiveness of their captors and, and going joyfully to their executions, like different times. Uh, they, they welcomed the outcast. They uh, had the first multi-racial communities on the planet. Like some things to, to understand about where this all begins. They, they taught that all people were of equal worth in the eyes of God. Can I get an amen today? Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, masters, servants, men, women. They were generous. They were people of extreme generosity. But where did that all come from? Where did all that energy come from that that grew faster and larger than anything in any other religious movement on the planet come from well um, a professor at Yale his name is Dr. Kenneth Scott Latourette and he said the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all it is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, virtually unequaled in history. Nothing else could explain the surge of the early Christian movement. What caused this release of energy lies outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. But then he goes on to say this. I want you to catch this. He says, before I'm a historian... I am human. How can I close my eyes to the obvious explanation that something supernatural happened? 
I want to look, I want us to look at this first message ever preached and try to show you what it was that was released, what released that energy that was seen. The message, relatively short and to the point in the book of Acts, led to this extraordinary response of 3,000 people coming and saying yes to Jesus. They invited Jesus into a personal relationship with themselves. And, and today, I'm going to do that same thing. I'm going to give you an op- opportunity to invite Jesus into a relationship with him today. Acts 2. If you have your Bibles, go to Acts 2. It's in the New Testament. And we're going to look at Acts 2, 22 to 41. We're going to pick up in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, 22. Uh, let me tell you what happened leading up to this. The, the apostles, the, the first band of disciples, had been hiding out together in an upper room when this mighty tornado-like wind had swept through the place. And we talked about this a little bit last week. And cloves of fire are there. And then they went outside into the crowded marketplace. And the temple, uh, they were there, and there was this huge crowd of people there. And they began proclaiming the glory of God in languages that were unknown to them. Okay? So there were people from all over the the world who said, wait a minute, I I can hear them speaking in my own native tongue. What's going on here? You're speaking in my language fluently. And so the speakers were were people who'd never really gone outside of, of where they lived. They have never been outside of Israel. So Peter stands up and he explains his response to this question that this multi language miracle was the fulfillment of God's promise to send the Holy Spirit. And that was a sign that God wanted the gospel preached in all languages to all nations. Isn't this awesome? And he says this in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of wicked men. This Jesus God raised up And of all that we are witnesses, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Let's move on to verse 40. It says this, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. I want to go back to that, that, that phrase there, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. It felt like a knife had entered into their chest, as explained here. Jesus had promised in John 16, verse 8, that when the Spirit came, would come, He would convict the world of sin and convince them of who he was. Now, this word convict 
is, is really a Greek word, and it, it means cross-examine. So they were, to, they were going to be cross-examined to, to press you with evidence it, until your inconsistencies are exposed and, and you consent to the truth. That's what the Spirit does. And that's exactly what's happening in Acts. So two questions come out of this today. What was it that cut them to the heart? What did they do in response today? Because this was the energy of the Christian movement. Why were they cut to heart? Tim Keller says that two things about what Peter said cut them. They, they realized that they had been wrong about Jesus. You know, in Jesus' day, there were a lot of different theories about him. There was, people had all kinds of things that they wanted Jesus to be. They, they, some wanted him to be a prophet. They thought, that, oh, that would be great. Just, if Jesus could come and be a prophet, we'll, we'll listen. They, they wanted him to, to call them back to, to religion. And others wanted him to be a, a political messiah. Delivering them from oppression and overturning the corrupt Roman Empire. And others just kind of wrote Jesus off. Well, he's just kind of a fake. He's a charlatan a, and a magician with a strange, charismatic power over people. You know, he's kind of different. But Jesus would not conform to, to everyone's expectations. He claimed to be God. He demanded absolute lordship over his followers. He forgave people's sins, something that the Jews thought would, is blasphemous. He let people worship him, saying that if they didn't, that the very rocks themselves would cry out and praise him. He claimed to be on a rescue mission to save people and that he was the only way. Lots of claims here. And people were like, Jesus, we like you. You're, you're kind of cool. But can you be quiet about all this God, Lord stuff? So... We wouldn't have to crucify you. Jesus said that in the resurrection, however, God overturned their opinions and declared Jesus to be who he was. Lord, which means God. Not another religious prophet, but the creator of the universe. That's who Jesus says he is. And Christ, which means the only Savior. Not one way among many, but the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. Are you hearing me today? Many of us today, we have something that we want Jesus to be. Like, like if you think about it, like I just wish Jesus could be like, you know, a, a good religious teacher. I can deal with that and, you know, maybe the backbone of Western morality and, you know, one of the many ways to know God. Like, there are people who kind of believe this and think this in our day. But Jesus would not let himself be relegated to that. I saw an interview with, with Bono 
Now, if, if there are people in this room that are not my age, you have no clue who, what, I, what I mean when I say the word Bono. Like, he was a cool dude. He was, like, one of the biggest band members. I had a poster of Bono in my room, okay? Like, that's how cool Bono was. Anyway, lead singer of a band called U2. And um, in an interview, the subject of Jesus. And so here's a guy who's, like, kind of, like, people know who this guy is, Bono. And so he's having this discussion, and the subject of Jesus came up, and it was on a public news station, and and the most fascinating conversation transpired. Bono said that the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot to say about uh, the lines of other great prophets, but like, Guys like Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I am God in the flesh. And people say, no, 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 please, just be a prophet. We can handle that. Prophet we can take, yeah. But you're a bit eccentric, you know. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But, but not God. Not the Messiah because you know we're going to have to crucify you if you say that. And he goes, no, 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 no. I actually am the Messiah. And at this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh, my God, why does he keep saying this? So what you're left with is, with is either Christ was who he said he was, God incarnate, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking nutcase on the level of like Charles Manson or something like that. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, he says, for me, that's a little far-fetched. Let me just point out what Peter is saying here. They killed him. But God resurrected him. And if God resurrected Jesus, that when you and I think of him, is really less important than who he is. So let me ask you today, are you open-minded to consider who Christ says he, he is? Have you opened yourself up today to who Jesus presents himself to be? I want you to think about this. What if I was writing a biography about you, and I decided to write something interesting in your biography that wasn't true. Like, like you had a desire, perhaps, to be an astronaut. Like, you know, like this is your story. But you flunked out of astronaut school. Is that what they call it? So you became very depressed, and you took on stray cats. You opened up a cat rescue in your home, where quickly over 100 cats took over the space you lived in, but the neighbors complained because this wasn't a licensed, proper licensed cat rescue home, which made you depressed again. But you stopped me, and you said, hold on a second. How can you write this? This is not my story. And I say, yeah, I know, but it's way more interesting than the story of your life. 
don't you want people to know who you are? You would be offended, right? Unless you love straight cats. I don't know. Let me ask you this. Today, are you humble enough or open enough for Jesus to be who he is? Or do you insist that Jesus, you've made him to be something else? The Bible says that they were cut to the heart. But they realized they were wrong about Jesus. They looked at the resurrection. That's the question. Did God resurrect Jesus? The people listening to Peter didn't see how they could deny it. And keep in mind, this, this place, uh, this all took place less than two months after the crucifixion in the very city where Jesus had been killed. Here are 3,000 people who could have said, hey, hey, no, 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 no. I can lead you to his tomb. I can show you where his body is. But no one did that. And they didn't see how it could have been a hallucination. Paul refers to 500 people who saw him at the same time. Most of them were were still alive at this time of this writing. And so you could check. Just ask them. Like, we saw this. You saw this. Like, a lot of people saw this. 500 people don't hallucinate that way at once. They they didn't, like, we saw Elvis at, you know, the co-op the other day. So it's not like that. They, they just couldn't dismiss them as liars. What profit would they gain from this lie? This, this confession didn't usher them in a lot of money or power. Every one of the apostles would end up dying a martyr's death as we read the scriptures. But proclaiming to the end that he's alive, we saw him. This is their testimony. And this made them conclude that we had wanted Jesus to be one thing. But his resurrection declares him to be something else. So again, let me ask you this question. Have you opened yourself to Jesus? Who presents himself who he is? Are you open-minded about him today? So they were cut to the heart because they realized they had been wrong about Jesus. They were also cut to the heart because they realized they were responsible for the death of Jesus. A couple of different times, verse 23 and 36, we see this. Peter points to this crowd and and says, you killed him. Now, over the years, this verse has been used anti-Semitically to to claiming that the Jews killed Christ and that they should be held responsible for it. But this is a really terrible understanding of Peter's meaning. First, when Peter says, you killed him, he was speaking globally. To all of us, not everyone there had been directly involved in, in Jesus' crucifixion, but, but he's looking at all of them, and he's looking at all of them, and he's saying, you killed them. In verse 39, Peter says, this is about you, your children, and those who are far off, people in countries all around the world that have never been born yet. This was our collective responsibility. This wasn't about a particular group, people group or of Jews in Jerusalem. It was all about people. It's about you and it's about me. And when Peter says this, secondly, you killed him, Peter was speaking personally. Peter knew that he himself had a part in this. On the night that Jesus was crucified, we read in the, in the scripture, 
Peter had denied him three times, the Bible says. Luke records a very important life detail in, the, in his gospel. And after the third denial, the Bible says that at that moment, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Think about this. The rooster crows a third time. The Lord looks straight at Peter. Jesus turned straight around and looked at him. Now think about this. The face of Jesus, by that point, probably would have been purple. Probably would have been disgusting to look at. Just bruised with blood and spit dripping down it. And Peter realized in that moment that Jesus was being beaten for his betrayal. And Luke says that he was cut to the heart. And then he went out and he wept. And those who were listening to Peter came to the exact same conclusion Peter did. We did this. Like, this is, this is us. The Bible says, you see, that Jesus died for our sin. He was wounded for our transgressions, the Bible says. And so you're cut to the heart when you realize that it was, it was your sin. It was my sin. It, it was our sin that did this. See, Jesus, is, he's looking at you. You did this against God. It was for your rebellion, your cheating, your refusal to do things God's way, your selfishness, your pride, and your, your hatred, your bigotry. Before you are cut, you think of sin as breaking God's rules. But after you've been cut, through this realization, you think of them as breaking God's heart. You see, that he came in love as a father coming to gather his rebellious children home. But he said, no, I, I don't trust you. I, I'd rather be in charge of my own life. And we resisted him. And when he wouldn't be resisted, what did we do? We, we killed him. Has this realization ever happened to you? Have you ever come to terms with this? Like, this is something that hits us, strikes us today. Have you been cut? I remember when it happened to me. I remember going through life and grew up in church, doing all the churchy things, going to church on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday evenings, and, and doing all the right things and following all the rules and, you know, being a goody, 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 good, good Christian person. And then I saw that my rebellion put Jesus up on the cross. I saw that my ways of not following him and serving him and doing what he's asked me to do put him on the cross. My caring more about my things, the opinion of my friends, what will they think if I say I'm a Christian? What, what will people think about me if I follow this path? Being ashamed of, of being identified with him by my my giving myself over to the lusts of the flesh. And I could see Jesus looking at me. When I come to that realization, that's where it changed me. 
Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever had that moment, a firsthand personal experience with God that, that, that you can't come to God because of the faith of your parents? And I remember having this moment in my own life, and maybe you're here today, and you've never had this moment. I'm, I'm praying and, and, and asking the Lord to speak to you today that it isn't something you do because grandma told you you should do it, or grandpa, or your mom, or your dad, or some good friends and neighbors of you. Like, wow, their lives are great. Maybe I'll just do it because they say we should do this. You can't come to God because of the faith of your parents. You can't come to God because grandma's praying for you. Oh, I pray grandma prays for you, continues to pray for you. So what did they do? They did three things. They sought forgiveness for the cross. Peter said, verse 38, come and be baptized as a symbol that you're claiming Christ's death as your forgiveness Now, that's a little ironic, isn't it? You say, the cross of Jesus is where we murdered him. How could that be the place of forgiveness? Isn't that cool? Like, when you think about that, that's, that's, wow. Yes, the great irony is this, the cross is that God used our inmost heinous crime against him as the means of our salvation. Romans 6.23 says that on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty. Isaiah 53.5 says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. There are two things you have to see in the cross. One is that your sin, your sin, my sin, did that to him. Two, that he did it to rescue you. The the cross is an invitation of God's grace. It's an offer for you to come home. It's not enough to feel the condemnation of the cross. You have to perceive and receive the goodness of God coming to you through it. Peter was not the only, apostle, the only apostle to betray Jesus that night and realized that his betrayal, what was killed, was the thing that killed Jesus. Judas did it as well. Judas saw his sin, had crucified Jesus, but he didn't see that, what he didn't see is that God gave himself in love, saying, come back to me. Come back to me. And so he went and he hung himself. He missed something here. And Jesus resurrected from the dead, saying that to to, to you and to me today. You killed me. You put me there. But I was dying for you to come back. Have you ever heard this voice of the Father saying, come back, come home? I heard this voice. I heard this voice. And it's transformed my life. It's, it's made a difference, all the difference in the world. I, I, I read a story about a man who, who put a classified ad in the newspaper some years ago. And his son and he had a, a falling out, terrible situation. And he's sad, he's upset. His son John is just broken relationship. And he puts a classified ad 
And he says, all he says this is, John, all is forgiven. Come back to me, Dad. And a phone number is placed, and then Dad waits. And he gets hundreds of calls. Hundreds of calls. There are people in this world who are just saying, I just want to come back. I just want to come back. I, I long to be reconciled back into the relationship with my Father. You were created for relationship with the Almighty Creator, God Himself. Blaise Pascal, the, the French philosopher, he called it a void, a God-shaped hole in our heart. We know something's wrong, but we don't know what it is, and we spend all of our time, all of our lives trying to figure it out. Sometimes it's a career path. Sometimes it's a, it's a relationship. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your reputation. You're working so hard to achieve, but we get to the end of our life, and nothing fills that void. Because that void is in the shape of God. Because it's where what God has left for us. It's created by the love of God. You were created to know the love of God of the universe. You were created to, to feast upon his glory. You were created to walk with him, to talk with him in might and in power, to show the beauty and the glory of who he is. You were created to be his son. You were created to be his daughter today so that you could know him and you could bring him joy. But you and I, Man, we messed that up. And what is left is called sin. So they changed their minds about God. The, the word Peter uses is repentance. He says this in verse 38, repent and be baptized. Repentance in Greek means a change of mind. It's more than a resolve to just do better. It's a whole new attitude toward God you see that your entire attitude toward God has been wrong. You've resisted that, that he, him as an adversary. Now you see him as your loving father. And that changes your attitude towards sin. When you know someone loves you, it changes your heart toward them, doesn't it? Like when you know they're not out to get you, it just changes how you are. You know, if someone came up to me and said, you know, Dave, it looks like you and Jess have a great relationship. You know, you can just tell that she loves you so much. She's loyal. She's faithful to you. You know what? You could probably just cheat on her and, and she'd be fine. Whew, it's quiet in here she'd probably forgive you. She's such a wonderful woman. No. Her, first of all, no. <laughs> I'd be dead. She, she reminds me of that all the time. Huh. But I'm telling you, her faithful love toward me makes me want to be more faithful to her. The love she's shown me is is love that I can experience. I, I can feel it. It's, it's tangible. It's real. And so, so when you see that steadfast faithfulness of Jesus on the cross, 
It changes your love towards God. Because you see that he's not the enemy trying to to lord it over you, like his power and dominion over your life. He's a father that created you for his purposes and for you to walk in him. That's the abundant life that we get. It's everything that you've been looking for. Romans says that the goodness of God leads us. It leads us to repentance. Amen? That's the goodness of God. He, he cares enough about us that he'll lead us to repentance. Not threat, threatens us. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. You see, in the cross, how good is he? How far has he reached for you? Well, preachers of old used to say that you know, there's two sides of the gospel sword. One side is fear, realizing that we stand under the condemnation of God. The other side is love, realizing that the great love that God our Father has for us. The love side cuts more sharply. You have a heavenly Father who always loved you, always watched you, never given up on you, always been trying to bring you back. Change your heart toward Him. Third thing they did was they surrendered. In verse 37, they said, what shall we do? Not, okay, give us two or, things, two or three things that we can do to make this up, to pay God off. But what shall we do? We'll do anything, whatever it takes. Well, coming to Christ means recognizing that He is Lord, and you've been living in rebellion against Him. Let me give you this, this quote here, and I want us to think about this from C.S. Lewis. We don't come to God as bad people trying to become good people. We come as rebels to lay down our arms. It's not about becoming a better person or being a little more religious. It's about recognizing the Lordship of Christ that he's in charge, and we surrender everything to him and receiving his offer to be our Savior. That's something you've either, you've either done it or you haven't. It's like there's this line. You've either come up to it or you haven't. You've either recognized him as Lord and surrendered your life to Jesus, or you haven't. You either receive his offer of salvation, or you haven't. I'm not saying that you become a perfect person. Listen, I struggle with that daily. In areas of inconsistency, in areas of sin in my life, but I know that he is the Lord, and I'm done arguing about who is in charge. Jesus is in charge. He's the Lord. He's the ruler of the entire universe. And we have a culture where a lot of people have grown up or in in and around church, but have never crossed that line. Maybe you see Jesus as your your Savior. You said yes to Jesus, but you haven't made him the Lord of your life. You haven't fully given him everything in your life. And there are areas of known inconsistency in your life. And, and you're not actively a disciple, not an active part of a church. Maybe you compare yourself to others and think, well, I'm good enough. So-and-so's, I'm way better than them. 
you know, as long as God grades on the curve, I'm doing okay. That's not the issue. The issue is whether you've ever surrendered your life to Christ personally. Whether you've received him and said, Lord, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want to give you everything. Well, I, I grew up in a church, Pastor. Of course I'm a Christian. What else would I be? I'm not a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist. You have to choose Christ personally. Whatever your background is, whatever you're coming from, it's not good enough that Grandma said yes. I mean, we're thankful that Grandma said yes. But you have to choose for yourself today. Have you made that decision to make him Lord of your life? Have you stepped across that line? Save yourself from this crooked generation. Where would you be without Jesus? Would you stand to your feet all across this room? If you were to die without him today, the Bible says, what is a prophet of man? Jesus said, if, if he gains the whole world and loses his soul, for 3,000 people that day marked a turning point in their lives. The day they, they crossed that line. I believe that this day could be that day for some of you in this room today. To say, okay, I've, I've walked up to the line, but I've never, I've never crossed over. I've never said yes to Jesus. I've never committed my life to him. I've never given him the whole thing. Or maybe I did. And something in life took over. My life's been a mess. And I haven't been following him. And I've turned my back on him. Today is your day to say yes to Jesus again. And to return and to come back home as, as God is calling you. As the Father is calling out to you today. You want to say yes I say yes to Jesus. I, I, I receive this gift of salvation. In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus, but I don't want you to do this because I said so. I want us to just take a minute. We're going to worship together. I want you to let the, the Spirit speak to you this morning. Maybe you said yes at one point, and your life hasn't been walking with Jesus. Today is your day. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. We're going to give you an opportunity. Let's just worship him in this moment. Let's give him some time. Let the Spirit speak to you right here. Thank you for joining us today on Journey Church Podcast. For more information about our ministry, visit myjourney.church.